everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. Hello, I'm Deborah Hyde. I'm former editor of The Skeptic. I stepped down last year to take a break after 10 years. And I've been involved with scepticism for probably 15 years or so, um, helping to run various groups. I also speak on the malign supernatural, why people believe in nasty supernatural beings, because they're more common than gods. So I thought it was well worth understanding what that side of religion and superstition meant for humanity. Deborah, how many times have you introduced yourself? Because your introduction is the most efficient introduction I've ever heard. It's like <laughs> oh, you knew um, how to introduce yourself. Like if someone asked me how to introduce myself, I generally go, uh, <laughs> it's just deep, deep <laughs> breaths, but you were like really, really eloquent. You, yeah, eloquent. That's the word I was. Oh, okay. thank you very much. Because I'm enthusiastic about my subject. So I know how to make a pithy version of my subject, I suppose. You know, I, I love nasty supernatural creatures and oh. have done since I've quit. All right, Deborah, one thing that the world doesn't know about you, the public doesn't know about you. Something that the public doesn't know about me mm-hmm. is that I'm a squirrel magnet. I feed squirrels most days and some of them are friendly enough to eat out of my hand. So I guess you wouldn't predict that. From, no. uh, the squirrels run away so quickly. That's what I thought. They do unless they're used to you. And and they do, they recognize people and they recognize noises and you kind of, it, it's a rapport you have to build up over a period of time because they're nature's victims, let's face it. So they will run away from anything. Yeah, they got a really shitty deal in terms of animals. Um, yeah. So how did we find Deborah Hyde? I was listening to a podcast and it was a true crime story about this uh, really religious Christian couple who were trying to help, help this guy's wife who probably had bipolar and schizophrenia, but they tried yeah. to help her out with exorcism. And they tried to do that for days and days and days to the point where they had to like sit her down and beat her so that they could beat the devil out of her. Wow. And eventually she ended up dying. Yeah. But the thing with that case is that they were doing it from uh, their heart. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you punish someone like that? Or do you punish them? And I thought that was really interesting that people still believe in exorcism. I think we come from very superstitious countries as it is. India and Pakistan are both really superstitious. I was very, very keen to know about the Western world and like how exorcism still exists. And then I started reading more about you. I went to your website and of course you've done heaps of work on vampires. Like how many people can talk about vampires (laughs) and the supernatural and our obsession with the supernatural actually? So... I was actually wanted to ask, so can we get into why you started this work? What fascinated you about it? I think there must be several factors to it. There's simply an urge to do something unusual. When I was a kid, we used to go up and see some of my aunties in the northeast of England. And my mum was very responsible, wouldn't let me watch horror films in case it warped my fragile little mind. But she would let me talk to these women who believed in the most awful things and we would we would all sit around and talk you know it was hair raising some of the things they were talking about you know ghosts and you know, a good guide on your right shoulder and a bad guide on your left shoulder and things like that so I absorbed that and there was a there's a very deep and visceral thrill that you get from that so um, I started off with the love of it and there's only so far you could go if all you're going to do is just imbibe uh, sensationalism, you know, or you can mm-hmm. movies and all this kind of thing. But ultimately, if you want to take it further, you have to start asking questions about, well, a lot of these supernatural creatures have very similar traits. Belief in them has arisen at various points in history. And when you start looking at it like that, you realize it's far more about people than it is about vampires. Hmm. And then yeah. it just takes you into a world. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life reading the work of experts on sociology and psychology and anthropology and the way people are and the way people behave. I suppose it started as a thrill and has ended up as a discipline. You know, I mean, I'm very grateful for it, really. I, I think if you have a passion as you go through your life, you're very, very lucky. I want a ghost story. Freak me out. Oh, well, there were, there <laughs> the first one that really off. freaked you out. Yeah, that was when my auntie Nora was telling me about a woman who was, I think she must have been psychotic or suicidal because she was, there's a good guide, your sort of angel on your right hand side and the bad guide, a demon on your left hand side. And it's an old explanation for this sort of two parts of the human soul fighting with each other. And she was at the top of stairs in her house And she felt compelled to throw herself down the stairs to kill herself. That was the bad guide. 
telling her, go on, go on, do it. And if she was actually hearing voices, then she was having a psychotic episode. Although a lot of people hear voices and yeah, manage to exactly. sort of non-clinical population. So it's, it's not as rare as, as people think. But that obviously the idea that there's some kind of supernatural agent, something potent and powerful, could encourage somebody to do something like that. And also, unlike a horror film, this was being postulated as real. The first horror film I watched, which was a um, pretty execrable vampire story called The Return of Count Yorga. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> I've literally never heard of that one before. You, you, don't, my... you don't need to see it, really. You don't need <laughs> I ship my pants watching. I've always been really scared of watching horror movies. Oh. <laughs> you said that, you know, they had those two voices and, and the devil yeah. and I guess the angel because we all have that to a point. So this would be a more extreme version of that where someone tells you, yep, do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of psychotic breakdown and she was probably fine if she if she was just going through, you know, one-off events when just the stress of life just gets too much and they have these crises points. It's really interesting that you said, you know, that there are two parts. One is right, like the good guy and then one is a bad guy. Because in Islam... Or, or girl. Because now sorry, we, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Or a good guy and a bad girl. Or a, okay. Yeah, okay. So I just, out of curiosity, because in Islam, what it says is there are people on our shoulders on each side. And yeah. they, the, one of them writes all your good deeds down and the other one writes all your bad deeds down. And then when you die, they kind of present all the evidence similar in a way. Yes. And I think people also generally underestimate the degree to which people have exchanged religious ideas as well. So especially in Eastern Europe, for example, the Ottoman Empire prevailed over a lot of Eastern Europe and until actually fairly recently. And so in the Balkans, you get a great fusion of ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, some originally come through from pagan times, some are Eastern Christianity, and there's Islamic ideas as well. These ideas do fuse. And the other thing that I really like to say is that the border between religion and superstition is not particularly hard. I think people generally, if they haven't done a lot in this area, tend to think that religion is respectable and superstition is silly. But actually, they're, they're not that different. To classify them in that way is... Well, it's rude and it, you know, it really doesn't follow the evidence. Superstition is a way of discounting somebody else's improbable beliefs. And the way people experience their religious lives is a part of one integrated whole. And you might know the things that you're not supposed to tell the priest or the imam, but as you still believe them and they have a very active part in your life and your rituals and possibly your conversations with the people who you still interact with every day. So I, I'd actually want you to define skepticism for the general population, because I, I guess there's a fine line between being skeptic and being a cynic. I think skepticism is actually quite important for survival. Otherwise, well, we are all pretty impressionable. And we were told when I was raised as a kid that you don't question, you don't question, you just believe. So yeah. well, what made you go into skepticism? And if you could define it. I would say skepticism is using an evidence-based view of life. I, and that will travel into a lot of corners of life. I don't have any problem with people believing anything. And I know that religion can be a great source of comfort to people, you know, therapeutic for people who do believe in it. So you're saying that God doesn't exist, <laughs> according to you? <laughs> Sorry. And why, why do you say that? There's not particularly any evidence that God exists. There is an awful lot of very good evidence that explains how human beings have come up with it. If you were to ignore need for comfort, the usefulness of pulling together in, in sort of tribal groups to survival, the way that our cognitive systems get things wrong all the time, the way that different human beings in isolated groups will come up with the same supernatural ideas again and again, so they have, they're working with the same cognitive apparatus. There's a list, as long as my arm, of reasons why people would come up with God even though it isn't there. And really, there's certainly not many reasons to believe in an interventionist God. If you say that God is something that stands above everything, that is non-interventionist, and that has created the universe and is unknowable, okay, fair enough. I, but then that's an untestable hypothesis. Uh, so you can believe that and that's fine. But when people start saying, oh, God wants me to do this, 
or God did that. Well, that's a testable hypothesis and it usually turns out not to be true. And the big issue that I have with religion is not so much that it's somebody's own personal internal life, it's the fact that it gets outside them and they start to come up with rules and compulsions for other people in relation to their reproductive rights or their sexual freedom. That's where it bothers me. If you have religious institutions running education systems, you know, as the Jesuits said, give me the boy of seven or eight or whatever, and I will give you the man. You get a kid early enough, you're going to fill them with the fear of God and produce lots of people who believe in those postulates or who are scared to, scared to question them. So when you speak about evidence, especially when it comes to skepticism, do you primarily rely on scientific evidence? Is that the only form of evidence that can actually prove stuff for people? Because a lot of times we have visual evidence and people have seen things. Can that mm -hmm. be taken as evidence or it doesn't have to be proved by science? Well, there's, there's data and then there's kind of mashing the data so it comes out meaningfully. And there is also the understanding that... You have to collect the data under very controlled circumstances, otherwise there could be all sorts of confounding variables. So if it's just simply a matter of somebody seeing something, well, the more people that see it is good, the, the better the lighting conditions is good. If you get something on video, that's good. You know, all of these things start to lessen the possibility that people have just misseen something. And we know people missee things and misperceive things all the time. Our brains aren't good for truth, they're good for survival. And so you had better be on very high alert for anything that could cause trouble. So if you jump because you see a poltergeist twice a day, then, okay, you're still alive and you can still produce young, but you only get to ignore a tiger once. So being on high alert is just one example of the way that we misperceive things. The thing with science is that it sort of rationalizes the data, if you like, and then works out the probability that you will have got this result just by coincidence as well. I'm just thinking now because I'm like, I, I've had experiences when I was a kid of ghosts and now I don't. You don't or you just <laughs> choose never, not to pay well, attention? See, that's the thing now. So Because as children, I, I just feel children are so much more open to ideas yes. and thoughts. So And they're more imaginative. It, well, they, they are. A lot yeah, of kids yeah, are yeah, quite yeah. imaginative. They've got... So you're saying things that you saw, you imagined them? Well, I mean, I'm... You're like you're I'm doubting, doubting it. it. Are you? Yeah. Really? But you, well, because... she has a great story, though. Oh, go on, then. Go on. Let's hear yeah. your story. So the house that I lived in was fairly old, and I was convinced that somebody was living in it other than us. On multiple occasions, I had seen a black figure walk through the halls. I would sleep with the light on because I was too scared to sleep with the light off. And when I was at other people's houses, like sleepovers and stuff, they would always turn the light off. And I was like, I want to be able to do that. <laughs> so one time, and the only reason I did it is because even though I had the lights on, I would hear somebody running up and down the hallway and into the kitchen and like pots and pans getting thrown around. I just decided I'm going to be brave and I'm just going to ignore it because it's going to happen anyway. I'm just going to turn the light off. So I turned my lamp off and I went to bed and I woke up suddenly. I don't know if I was half awake or whatever it was, but I think I tried to sleep it off. And then I woke up and I looked at the doorway and there was this black figure standing there. And I'm trying to ignore it and I'm trying to act like I'm not seeing it. And then I closed my eyes and suddenly I felt it run towards me and push me into my bed, its hands on my chest. And I opened my eyes, it ran out. <laughs> I was like, I'm never turning the light off again. And it happened to not just you? It hasn't happened to just me. My sister, she used to hear whispers. So she used to bang her head on the pillow every single night. My parents were like, what's wrong with her? My brother, he's, so they're younger than me. They both said that we hear that every single night. So we were too scared in that house. As but soon as we parents, moved out. But your parents never heard it. My dad once admitted that there was something there. But then ever since then, it's like, I talked to him about it. He's like, oh, really? Okay. I'm like, you admit it. So Why did your sister bang her head against the pillow? Was this a ritual to stop it getting to her or was it unconscious? I think she said that it was making her uncomfortable. So when she banged the, her head against the pillow, the noise would drown out. Jeez. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so that, several things from that story. First of all, fantastic story. That's, <laughs> that's really brilliant because it's kind of like escalated all the way up. Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is just because God doesn't exist, it doesn't mean that ghosts don't. Quite often, it's just a logical inconsistency that people will just lump every supernatural phenomena into one group. I, I don't know what happened to you because I wasn't there and we didn't have any data. But what I would say is that 
there are some places that feel more haunted than others. There's a lot of work being done on it. And there are all sorts of environments that probably lead to people feeling that something's more haunted than other places. There's been work done by Professor Jason Braithwaite and uh, Professor Richard Wiseman. First of all, if somewhere's old, people are more likely to think it's creepy. There's some belief that if you're in a thin corridor, that people are more likely to be on high alert. The idea is that your sort of your most primal brain knows that there are only two ways to get out. You can't really run. So environmental factors like that can make people more predisposed to to believe that there's a a ghost there. I've stayed in a haunted castle in um, Ravenglass in Cumbria in England. I've actually I've slept in the haunted room as well. And this is, you know, it is cold. It's a castle. Yeah, it's yeah. Cold. And the other thing is that uh, have you heard of sleep paralysis? I have heard of sleep paralysis. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. So paralysis is a strange condition where all sorts of things happen when you're asleep you know your brain turns off a load of buttons you don't make movements because you'd act out your dreams you don't realize what's going on in the room so if those buttons get switched off in the wrong order then you can get a peculiar hybrid of sleeping and conscious states so you can be correctly aware of your surroundings you can be correctly aware of your own body but there are dream phenomena intruding into your consciousness for some reason are mostly scary they don't have to be but they are mostly scary it's thought that people misperceive the fact that they are breathing in a really low, inadequate way because they're, they're asleep. The body doesn't need much oxygen. But they misperceive that as something pressuring their chest. Because your body is immobile when you're asleep, then you might be suffering from paralysis and you might feel that you can't move your body to protect yourself from whatever this thing is. I've had it a lot too. And I've also had it with with ridiculous things standing at the doorway so you know i know it isn't some dark monk it'll be some stupid little robot or whatever and the feeling of fear is still there so i would say that probably your experience was down to the fact that you knew that the house was old there would be clues about it all over the place that it was potentially creepy and then there was cultural contagion from you and your siblings that didn't spread quite so easily to your parents because they're a bit more rational and a bit more powerful adults Mm. are more powerful children are and then I would say you had an experience of sleep paralysis and it can be incredibly profoundly scary. So we've moved, we moved out and I'd never experienced any of that since. And my brother in the, in the newer house that we moved to, and it was a built fresh house, he actually got thrown against a wall once. He woke up and... Middle of the day or when he was... A middle of the day. St- he was asleep and he was, it was the next morning. He was still in bed, like asleep. I heard a loud bang and I'm like, what the hell is that? So I ran to his bedroom and he was just on the other side of his bed on the floor. And, and he was like waking up going, what the hell just happened? And I'm like, you tell me what just happened. And he goes, something threw me. And I'm like, what the fuck? He's never slept walked. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way of specifically knowing with, with things like that. And the fact that your brother was waking up and getting up, again, makes me think it's a kind of a mixture of conscious and unconscious him but of course we we can't be certain we can't know all all i can say for someone in that situation is two things first of all the examples of people actually really getting hurt are just so few that even if this is real and and this truly objectively exists then don't worry too much it'll be annoying rather than dangerous (laughs) and the other thing is that with sleep paralysis what really works is if you can practice sort of emanating love and acceptance because the fear of self-forgetting. I wake up loads of times with hooded figures at the bottom of the bed and I know what it is and it's annoying and I'm, mm. you know, I just... <laughs> that cycle. And then after seconds it evaporates. So if you can feel something other than fear, then it helps to break the spell. Going back to when you lived in that castle, what, what happened that night? Oh, this is a great story. This is, it's a lovely place. It's very isolated. And Dr. Jason Braithwaite does a lot of research there. And, and I know him, he's a friend. So we all went up there, I went up there with my partner. And Jason was doing various experiments. He's been running a long project there for many years. So Carl, my partner and I participated in this. We were with Ian Topham, who runs a brilliant website called Mysterious Britain. And um, this haunted room, Jason and Ian took the, took one 
half of it, there's a partition across it. And Carl and I had the actual haunted room. So we all went to bed at three or four in the morning. I'm just drinking tea to keep myself warm. And so we we lay there in the haunted room and I said to Carl, I need a wee. (laughs) Of course, drinking gallons of tea. And of course, the thing is, when you're in a haunted castle, the loo isn't just down the corridor. You have to go down the haunted corridor, down two sets of haunted steps, across (laughs) the haunted hall into the little haunted servants' quarters. And, you know, it's kind of like it's a good job. I need to wee Uh, now. (laughs) (laughs) And Carl said to me, do you want me to come with you? And I said, no, I'm a (laughs) sceptic. So I was determined to do this thing by myself. So I went downstairs, went to the loo. I won't, you know, I I won't argue with you. It was very unpleasant it was in this I, i'm a skeptic but i do i'm a subject to psychological you know influences as uh, everyone else is yeah but i came back and got back into the haunted room into the haunted bed and you know went to sleep and then the next morning carl said to me we were just eating breakfast and he said was that ian that followed you back oh no uh, stop it and i <laughs> i said no no ian and jason have got an ensuite loo in their room next door I said I was alone. And he said, oh, I, I heard boots on the floor. And I was wearing socks. <laughs> and we went outside afterwards. And the carpet that was out, there was a carpet outside. So you couldn't make a boot noise on the corridor. No. Uh, so, so does your pa- partner believe in, like, or is he just as sceptic as you are? No, he's worse than I am. Oh. I mean, you know... <laughs> Uh, no, no, he, he absolutely, he, he said, oh, right, well, it was an auditory hallucination because of stress. Wow. So he, it's a brilliant story, but he absolutely point blank refuses to believe it was anything supernatural. And what do you believe? I, I think it was probably an auditory hallucination because oh. of stress. Oh, but okay. it is. <laughs> Were you that stressed? Story. Were you really that stressed? I think she was, Loki. I don't think so. It was, it was unpleasant. I yeah. mean, yeah. I wouldn't have gone for another wee. <laughs> You're like, no more tea for me. <laughs> you go in for a wee, but you need to take a shit. <laughs> By the end of it. <laughs> Whatever, I would have held it all in. Can, you, can we stop talking about wee? I really need to wee. I'm, I'm not even kidding. And you keep on drinking tea <laughs> in front of us. And we are drinking tea as well. It's it's all a big okay. clusterfuck of wee. <laughs> um, question. This one's really confused me because... There's too many people in society and government who say many things, but aliens. I actually was, no joke, thinking about aliens. He actually paused for a second and I do we. <laughs> he actually does need to go. I think there's, well, I tell you what, I'll have one as well. Okay, yeah, let's, let's all, all go pee. Okay. Let's all go pee. All right, see you see back in two minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I warmed my tea up too. We literally did the same. <laughs> Alrighty. Aliens. Like, this is just a matter of too much speculation and debate. So I'm, I'm very, very keen to know, uh, given all the evidence that, that we know of, a huge number of videos that people have seen, including the CIA's, you know, releasing videos saying that they have seen unidentified objects. Well, what's your view on this? I don't know much about aliens, um, but I suspect that the rules of aliens, the same as the rules of ghosts and vampires, if... There is a technologically superior race that has come here. Then, you know, I I don't think we've got enough evidence to suggest that it's there. We've got an awful lot of evidence to suggest that people get things wrong. And also um, these appearances happen when there's a technological leap where superpowers are testing their technology. I mean, I think the stealth bomber was probably when that that was being tested before we knew about it was probably... um, a cause of all sorts of alien sightings. So I don't really know a lot about aliens, but I, I know we get things wrong. Do you believe in magic then? Yeah. Witches um, and witchcraft? Because we witchcraft. have Wiccans that practice... Like black magic? Yeah. Witchcraft's an interesting one because it is such a big subject and all societies have their version of witchcraft. And you start with the point that there is real power, which is unseen, and that some people can manipulate it and that the people who manipulate it for antisocial reasons are witches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some are presumably a priest giving you a blessing is a certain kind of power, but it's being channeled through the correct processes. So if somebody is being defined as antisocial, people tend not to define themselves as antisocial, though witchcraft is um, quite often a sort of an outsider 
view on it. If you're going to have a witch hunt, for example, if you're going to blame people, there are always other circumstances that are involved. It's not as though all of a sudden they just decide that, you know, Penelope down the road has been sort of skinning cats or something. Yeah. It's far bigger than that. The big witchcraft crisis in Europe, people often think it happens kind of, you know, way back in the Dark Ages when people were a bit stupid. Actually, they weren't stupid. And it happened in early modern times it was to do with political and social upheaval and religious upheaval so it was really the 16th and 17th centuries so those big witch hunts arose legally out of heresy law but took on a, a very different life of their own as, as we were talking earlier about people not seeing a border between their own private religiosity so they may be Christian but they may also feel that there are certain ritual practices that they can use for medicine there's an awful lot of evidence that there were you know there are cunning people both men and women who had a certain amount of a valid medical knowledge and a certain amount of um, what we would regard as superstitious medical practices as well that people would go there to find lost items or to to get whatever therapeutic interventions were available I mean if you or your cattle got ill Really, there was very little you could do. Yeah, so, so witchcraft is usually far more about the society uh, and the surrounding circumstances than it is about an individual. I, I would say Wiccans, a new religious movement, which is perfectly valid, no reason that they should be less respectable than people who've been religious for the last 1600 or 2000 years. Or It's just, a, you know, it's a self-conscious way. It's generally associated with environmentalism and with trying to live a, a sort of harmonised life with the environment. A woman called Margaret Murray, very good Egyptologist, but unfortunately she she went into European history as well, less successfully, and she wrote a book where she proposed that there had been a self-conscious pagan cult of witches in Europe uh, and that they were targeted in the witch hunts and it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So some people actually believe that and they feel like they're continuing a religion which has been going for thousands of years. But it's every bit as respectable to invent a religion in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, after all, somebody had to invent Christianity at some point. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned vampires. I was really... I've never thought that vampires even existed, to be honest. Yeah, I've never like, thought. Like, I actually thought it was just a horror thing. I thought it was a movie thing. Yeah. Like, I've always thought it's a movie thing, it's a culture thing that, well, we, we've just watched it on TV. Well, vampires were the aliens of their day. We don't believe in vampires now, us three, and probably the people listening to this podcast. There is still the occasional peculiar event in Eastern Europe which suggests that people kind of believe in it there. And... Even though vampires probably don't exist, the fact is that they were a very, very compelling belief for a certain group of people at a certain time. And that means something about humans, so that's a very interesting factor. And to summarise vampires, really what we've got is Eastern Europe, as I was saying earlier, with those different influences of religiosity. The Turkish Ottoman Empire wasn't particularly liberal and was very unpleasant in many, many ways, taking off children to be, you know, in the Janissary and things like that. But one way in which they were more liberal was that you could practice your religion as you wished, provided you weren't Catholic, because Catholic was the religion of the Austrian Empire, which was the Turkish Empire's political foe. People were free to come up with a sort of hybridised ideas of what was going on. Vampiric-type creatures exist in folklore all over the world. Something supernatural is sucking away your vital energy is common because diseases exist all over the world that do do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tuberculosis, for example. So if you watch, if you've got somebody and you don't have a microbial theory of disease and you're looking at somebody close to you and they're just withering and dying, then to assume that the blood is being taken out of them or the life essence is being taken out of them is not that much of a leap. I mean, it's it's just mm. a poetic explanation of what's really happening. And the interesting thing about vampires is that they were just treated as part of, just part of the background where they were, rather like um, people in England and Ireland and Northern Europe believed in fairies for so long. But it, what, it, it takes a foreign culture coming in and looking at people and going, what are they doing? 
So it, it so often takes a foreign commentator to come in and look. And, and in fact, politically, that happened in the early 18th century, is that um, the Austrian Empire rolled back the border a little bit, ended up administrating a lot of people who'd previously been administrated by the Ottoman Turks. And to them, it was offensive because they were Catholic, that people were digging up corpses and desecrating them. In actual fact, these people were just doing an old folk ritual in response to wasting diseases, usually tuberculosis or something, yeah. um, that they had done for hundreds of years. The symbolism is kind of easy to understand, really. If you've got a vampire, then you cut its head off because nothing can be potent without its head. Yeah. Um, you put it face down in the grave so that when it starts digging its way out, it's actually digging its way deeper. You, you don't have to stake it through the heart. You can stake it through any part of its body. It's just pinning it into the ground. So an awful lot of this stuff that we take as superstitious or mysterious, actually, when done in its kind of native format, is pretty logical and understandable. And it arose from the fact that we now can look at books and look at the internet to find out how people decompose. And they don't all decompose according to the same rules and at the same rate. It depends on the soil pH, what the person died of, what the temperature of the soil is. So it seems that as though these people would dig up their dead, would find some of them in what looked like good condition and just not understand. They, they thought they, they still looked alive. They looked healthy. I was going to say, like, even with that vampires don't like garlic, garlic, is it because it's a health remedy? Garlic is a mild antiseptic. It's actually pretty good if you don't have antibiotics. So, and The breath is, though. Garlic breath is pretty bad. <laughs> the day after, if you're talking to somebody. Oh, yeah. So uh, garlic or asfetida or the, the sort of smelly types of things. Yeah. Smells are thought to be potent to get rid of things all over the world. Also, you, you, if you see a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox priest... And they're walking through the church and everything, and they're swinging that thing with the smells. Yeah. Very potent smells. It just happens to be a bit nicer than garlic. It smells powerful. It can repel things. It's funny that it's so connected, though. I'd never even considered it. Um, talking about priests, I'm still surprised that exorcisms exist. I'm not really sure why, but I mean, the videos that you watch on TV with all these pastors like saying the prayers and People mm. have these weird sounds coming out of their yeah. body and you're like, holy yeah. shit. They this look is... actually demonic. Yeah, they look... They, That's yeah. creepy. Yeah, they look demonic. What's your research on that and why is it still happening or is it effective? Have you spoken to people who have, might have gone through it or... It depends what kind of exorcism. There are the, the, the sort of huge traumatic exorcisms, which are, are probably aren't good for anybody. Um, the Catholic Church is a bit... And the Church of England are a bit hesitant to do the all singing or dancing sort of exorcism talks. Actually, I went to a conference about four years ago where they were talking about demonic possession and exorcism, and uh, the Catholic priest was the most sensible person in the room. So I think the Catholic Church is very long in the tooth and doesn't fall into any obvious traps. Every time it kind of competes with science on its own level, it loses. And so as a result, uh, the Catholic Church is generally very kind of wily about all this sort of stuff. And quite often we'll have bodies which are associated with the church, probably subject to it, but they don't they don't mandate it. So they, they, there's kind of that slight distance if they do anything particularly funky. What you tend to find with exorcism these days, the, the two most common places are evangelical groups in many places. I, I'm thinking of the US because that's what I know a little bit more about. And evangelical groups are a bit immune to logic. They're, they're very, they're very um, self-contained socially, so they don't need to deal with, with criticism. You know, it's just you're talking to the choir, really. And they're also not old enough and rigorous enough, like the Catholic Church, to not step on the obvious, you know, sort of grenades, really. The thing about America, I spent a lot of time in America. It can be a very isolating place. I think the fact that it's on a continent means that it can kind of be socially, it can create itself. I detect something of that personality that used to be in the UK or used to be in England as, as I was growing up. Less so now because in reality, you know, we, we sort of travel an awful lot more to the EU. We have more international relations, but just... In the United States, you can go from, you know, the Rockies to Florida. You can go through all of these geographical changes, but you don't go through cultural change. You buy the same Coca-Cola, you buy the same food, you see the same Walmarts. And so there's an awful lot of people in the United States who haven't traveled either physically or mentally. And 
you can get enclosed evangelical religiosity as a result of that. So that's one version of exorcism. Another that is causing a great deal of concern is in Africa. I've written about that a few times. And there are lots of African groups on the ground are really trying to do something about this. And that comes again from social and economic crises. You hardly ever find someone being beaten to death for an exorcism who has money, who's an adult, who is at the center of a social group. Really, if you've got a community which is desperately, desperately poor, and then you have a five-year-old without a parent, that person is a is an economic liability. Mm. You've got to feed them and they can't give you anything. And so you can work out a way of legally and morally getting rid of them. And that is when you decide that they're possessed. Wow. That's a this consciously of course but if you look at all of the victims they are adopted or uh, foster children um, foster children without the proper parental um, protections in place um, people without protection in their social group if you go back to more functional situations where people are poor but they're not desperate then you can quite often find uh, witchcraft accusations functioned in the same way that it was a way of kind of ceasing social relations with somebody you know we don't have to engage in any kinds of exchanges anymore you you're just on the outside as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. and exchanges are the way that poor people live you know you we'd have to live in communities we're no good by ourselves so you said it's really bad in africa so what so what's happening are they only in, in some places and it's just in places where there has been a lot of dislocation or where there has been war or you know just an upset people have funky beliefs at all times yeah but it comes to a crisis point from the behavior and from it actually turning out in the world that's outside circumstances yeah in pakistan so i'm from pakistan yeah. we had My dad said to me, oh, you know, one of my friends, he's bought an apartment. Now, this apartment, he said it's been built on a graveyard. (laughs) So he's like, there's been a a few issues. And so apparently my dad's friend said that there's a vibe in the house and all this sort of stuff. Like he's like, you know, I've seen things here and blah, blah, blah. And he got a imam to come through and bless the house. And the imam left like all these sort of suras at the Ravis around the house yeah. to kind of ensure that there was no bad spirit, spirit around there. Yeah. So it's a very common, even if it's not exorcism as such, it's sort of... Getting rid of the demons. Getting rid of the demons, yeah. Well, the thing with Islam as well is that belief in jinn is a perfectly respectable, integral part of Islam. So mm. it's that you are kind of stepping slightly outside and integrating a pagan element. Yes. It really is it's quite clear what jinn are and what they yes. do in Islam. And, belief, and and fear of the dead is universal. Yeah, it is. So what happened? Uh, did it stop? Did the bad um, Apparently it did, but it took a few it took a few routes to kind of get it. Apparently there was like people in the apartments below who for no reason slipped in their bathroom. You, you think just, the spirits just wanted rent? <laughs> like, because I get angry when, when we don't get rent, right? Like, maybe it is placebo and that's... I that's, was going to say, I think yeah, it is. I mean, it can be. I mean, that's the thing about possession and exorcism is that, you know, you, you can't always assume that somebody is sort of going to be beaten to death. Sometimes if somebody is distressed, then it might be therapeutic to feel that they have the support of a community and the supernatural support of their their god against whatever crisis they're going through. Interestingly, with Islam, it just reminds me that there's a, a kind of there are many Greek terms for vampires. Greece is a, a place absolutely infested with vampires, and there, you know, again with a very strong Islamic strain there because of the the Ottoman Turks. And there's one of the words is um, anakathumenos, which means. It means somebody who sits up in their grave, basically. It means that they're sitting up, but it suggests that they weren't before. And that I, I've always wondered, nobody else has suggested this, but I've always wondered if that was an Islamic influence, because in Islam, after you die, you're supposed to be sat up sat in the grave and interrogated by a couple of angels. Yes. Um, just oh, really? Which, yes. Which place you're going to. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a set of questions that you get asked as soon as you get buried. And yeah, that determines whether you're going to go to hell or heaven 
Oh shit! That's why Hindus just bloody burn the bodies. So they like fuck that. It's just bloody ash. <laughs> Let's ignore the line of question. Yeah, and, I'm not and, talking to any angels. Yeah, yeah I'm not, and and that I find extremely interesting as well. That you know, I I'm very surprised where that idea came from to to burn bodies and you know, and then uh, throw the ashes away in water. The whole idea is so bizarre to me. The interesting thing is that usually, I, I don't know about the ecology of burning bodies in India, but I'm guessing that there is a ready fuel source. Generally, in Northern Europe, you bury bodies just because burning them is really expensive in, in calories. I, I can't, I did you mm -hmm. know in calories how many it took to consume a human body? It's a lot. So it was generally either a prestigious way of Mm. giving someone death rights or it was a way of getting rid of someone when you had to you had to get rid of their power there was a, a vampire called um, Peter Plodogovic for example I went to his grave in Serbia and they they him up and burned him okay uh, and people often ask me well why don't they just burn everybody and you've normally got to have a concentrated fuel source because um you know, death rites tend to follow whatever the local ecology is. The Parsis, for example. In yeah, Rome, I was going to say the Zoroastrians. Yeah, they they had these uh, th these platforms, and you would be eaten by birds. birds. I'm, I'm guessing. Places, so I'm guessing in places like that that for some that wasn't good to bury people, and you didn't have the fuel to burn them either. Maybe it's that's the cause there. of India's pollution. I never thought about that. It's all the bloody burning we do. It's like we, and we're using yes. so much fuel and releasing like so many carbon particles in the air. It's a possibility. I, I don't know. It's a possibility. I know that in India now, there are an awful lot more crematoria. People tend to do that there, which is going to be cleaner. But yes, there must be a lot of... And I mean, now we have electric ones. So we burn the bodies. Uh, so they're electric, yeah. sort of electric pyres. What a, what a waste of coal. Just cut them up and put them... Cut them? I don't know. Uh, what's wrong with cutting? Most serial killers did that. Okay, it's, but it's, we're not serial killers. It, it would fit. <laughs> it would be really, really easy. So we're a skeptic then. Either it has to be, I guess, it has to be scientifically proven, there has to be data, or the other thing is coincidence. Yeah, I think we have a very strong tendency to link things into a narrative. You can see in films, my, my other half is a screenwriter, and he ha he refers to these... He's a screenwriter. Yeah, considering he he's a screenwriter. He may get so many stories from you. Yeah, but being a screenwriter, he's like, no, that couldn't be a pair of boots. Like, he's so, he's so like... <laughs> At the same time, you have to be in a fictional world to be writing stuff. It's yeah, he's really... very, very imaginative, just doesn't believe in any of it. That's pretty... That's, that's, that's a great it's way. Good. Yeah, it's good, it's good. Sorry, continue. Well, we both sleep well at night, put it like that. Yeah. You know, we don't, don't lie there quaking at the poltergeists. Yeah, exactly. You'd have a great night. I still don't know what poltergeist is. Can you please tell me? Poltergeist is literally... It's a German word and it's basically a throwing ghost. It's a, it's a ghost that interacts with the world in not just a, a perceptive way you don't just see it but it will throw things or at the worst start fires oh, yeah wow. yeah shit okay as far as i know the, the actual word probably the belief was around an awful lot more before that but the word was first mentioned in writing by martin luther and he mentioned it as one of the abuses of the catholic church and i think what he meant by that was that when people believed in poltergeists they would go to their priest and for a fee, the priest would get rid of the poltergeist. Martin Luther wasn't keen on the church of encouraging people in superstition. All right, going back to, we were talking about coincidences. Well, I recently took a part in a really good podcast about the Battersea poltergeist. I don't know if you guys can get it in Australia. It was a BBC production, so they, it might be licensed to Australia at some point. And it was produced by a guy called Danny Robbins. He did a fantastic job of taking what I think is a fairly open and shut case of an attention-seeking girl and making a nine-episode suspenseful podcast about it, wow. about the was it, wasn't it supernatural. And the thing that struck me about that particular case was that there were a lot of different phenomena which started out small and then, you know, they went on to other things. And the whole point about it was that there was not necessarily any reason to believe that the things were linked. The people were predisposed to create a narrative. And then once you create a narrative and you think that you've got an agent, you think that you've got something which is intelligent and has a sense of itself, then it has intentions and it wants this and it's doing that because of this. Mm -hmm. So 
the potential for story making, the human potential for story making, I think, had a huge effect in that particular case and in many others. Yeah. Can you briefly tell us about the case so that we can get our listeners to go and listen to the full mm. podcast? A lot of people have heard of the, Inf the Enfield Poltergeist, which is something that happened in North London in the 1970s. This is a very, very similar case. It happened in southwest London in the 1950s, and it's a less heard of case. Poltergeists usually occur around young women, sometimes around young men, but certainly uh, around people going through puberty. And this phenomena happened around a young woman called Shirley Hitchings, and it followed her around for many years. The thing that I found interesting and that I've written an article about for The Skeptic magazine uh, the next time that comes out is that there was a supernatural investigator called Harold Chibbit, I think, and he was really desperate for this to be the case of a generation. He wanted fame. He was a nice man and everything, but he really believed in it. He brought other people in, created a lot of momentum, made it into a big story that wouldn't have been if he hadn't been there. So I, I think the role of the facilitator, the amplifier, uh, this usually male expert who comes in and tells everybody what's actually happening is tremendously important in these cases. You know, it's really good. I mean, the producer, Danny Robbins, has done a great job of making a suspenseful podcast of something which is probably at its core not particularly substantial right i think well yeah. he created a narrative as well that's what he did made yeah. it a story and that's 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 really cool like it's yeah. it's how we see the world yeah we, any, we see it in narrative yeah like nothing can't just be yeah. there has to be a story behind it and also if you can infer a causal relationship then you can predict one as well it just gives you a bit more agency it means that you can you're a bit more in control of your situation if you know there's a thing that likes to do this then you know that thing's going to like to do that this evening as well yeah so i i think it's all about power in a powerless i was literally going to say it, it makes you powerful right like people mm -hmm. who can yeah. come up with a narrative that makes you go holy shit i didn't think of that he thought of that yeah. or she thought of that that must be this person must be supernaturally powerful like they have certain abilities that i don't yeah and, and i think that's the interesting thing also about certain kinds of religious figures because you know there are two there's a market approach to religion which is not something that you say to your local priest because he'll get pissed off with you, but you can have very institutionalized forms of religion where you have qualifications and hierarchies. And it's like any other job, you know, if you're going for archbishop or whatever, you put your CV in and you try and write your list of virtuous works <laughs> and you become a priest, not because um, God has chosen you, but because you've done your degree and you know, <laughs> you've gone through a very hierarchical procedure. And, and you can't be a priest without it. On the other hand, if you've got a new religious movement, if you've got, say, for example, spiritualism, where you are directly in touch with spirits and you evoke them on behalf of your audience, then with that, it's the same thing. You become a priest or a priestess, but you have to do it with the sheer force of your personality. Tend to do that don't have qualifications as an option. You know, they're not going to go and get a degree in theology, but they can be powerful or mysterious. Yeah. Mum's got away with animals. They're different models of priesting. All religions get to the point where they have that hierarchical model. And that's exactly what Church of Scientology has done. I mean, it, I've never seen such a useless religion that's become so massive. It's 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 amazing. That is an example of business done right. It would do with the target audience. It's like there's a specific audience that they're going for. Do you think that there are certain personalities or traits or... Like vul vulnerable? Yeah, vulnerable people or something. Yeah, it's such a huge subject that it's very difficult to narrow it down yeah, to fair. apart from anything else because there are so many ways of being religious. Researchers sort of argue about the differences a lot and some people will define some kinds of scales and other people will go, no, my scale works out more. But what all this draws attention to is the fact that people are religious in different ways. Ample, there's extrinsic religiosity, which is very uh, ritual-led. You know, you might go to your local church or your local mm. mosque. You'll have a social group. You'll also have a professional yeah. group. Where you might get advancement in job opportunities. Marriage, marriage proposals. Yeah, because... Yes, marriage, exactly. Right, so really kind of hardcore social value. And then there are people who are intrinsically religious and they are more likely to, you know, they'll do yoga or meditation. They might have personal mm. 
experiences, they it's a lot more internal for them. They, they might be a hermit or sort of turn internally and examine themselves. So whether you believe quite in that scale or not, it does evoke the fact that people are religious or superstitious in different ways. Yeah. And so you're going to have different personality traits according to that. The great uh, psychologist William James thought that there were religious geniuses who had it, who invented it, and that people followed them. And I don't think people believe that anymore, really. Mm. It's, it's, we're all religious or superstitious in our own ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who tend to go for the, the stuff that isn't really particularly evidence-based. People who uh, might believe in various superstitious things, for example, score higher on uh, absorption. They're more likely to be able to really concentrate on a movie, story, somebody who would kind of, things like that. There are personality traits that are associated with different types of religiosity. And just for kicks, I was researching this character and I went to the Hillsong Church. And, and the Hillsong Church thing, when you go in there, like the the size of the theater in which these churches are, it's like as big as a stadium, like the Old yeah, Trafford Stadium. Like they're massive and they've got the best quality of sound and lights. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the best party that you can go to <laughs> without drugs. Yeah. It's an amazing party without drugs. And everyone, people are crying and people are just saying the name of the Lord. And I'm like, oh my God, these people actually believe this. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not dressed like the typical pastors. They're they're dressed like like punk rock bands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they're so now they're different. No, no. They're yeah. they're very daggy. Like these are good looking, charismatic people who are like on stage singing and dancing. Don't know if this church falls into that category, but certainly if you've got more cultic type organizations, then a typical thing to do to get someone in to begin with is to love on them. Yes. Give them lots of experience, great experience. Make sure there are lots of people around constantly in touch with them, how great they are, and just just make them feel high. Exactly. (laughs) So go to a rave party instead. No, no, don't. Don't take Sahil's advice. Yeah, well, I don't think Deborah was going to go anyway. How do you know? Oh, you might, you might. No, I I know for a fact. I know. (laughs) When was the last time you went to a rave, Deborah? Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly yeah, as I thought. You would rather go to a castle that's haunted. <laughs> um, yeah, I do like castles. i got a really soft spot for castles in medieval church. And you've but got beautiful castles. There was a, a goth club called Slimelight in London. I used to Slimelight. Go to yeah. Slimelight, that's a good name. What's the next part of your research going to be? At the moment, uh, I'm doing several bits of work. And, and also, just in the background, I'm constantly trying to write this flipping book that seems to be taking forever. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, working title is Unnatural Predators. And it's we all know about natural predators, tigers and lions and things. Mm. These are ones like vampires. And uh, I'm working on fairies at the moment. Ooh. So I just wanted to do kind of a popular paperback type book, an introductory thing for people about how all of these... All of these tropes that we have in our horror movies and entertainment were originally somebody's sincerely held religious beliefs. And it's just interesting to see where those beliefs have come from. And I started with the zombies chapter, for example. Nice. Because uh, zombies are zombies part. Are, I would actually say that zombies are more of a believable factor than vampires in a way nowadays, especially with all the zombie movies that are coming out and like with virus and stuff like that. Yeah, well, and zombie movies also are very malleable, very useful because you can use them to explore social breakdown. You know, they can be turned to an awful lot of purposes for the kind of like the larger the larger theme of a story. Mm-hmm. So, and it questions a lot of things about humans and society in general. So it's, yeah. it's very useful for that kind of stuff. I'm trying to produce a movie at the moment, which turns out to be um, a rather hard thing to do. Writing various articles and things like that. I'm writing one for, I think it's an Australian publication, actually, the Vampire Journal. So, um, yeah, lots of stuff just keeps coming in. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. Is this, there... I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. This no, was it's really been amazing. It's good. exciting. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye, guys. Yeah.